Sing to the Lord a new song, for God has done marvelous things. God has revealed God's vindication in the sight of the nations. God has remembered their steadfast love and faithfulness. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Amen. The first thing that I want to do is to point out a piece of the readings assigned for today that has been totally misused and abused. In the second letter to the church in Thessalonica, the apostle writes, Anyone unwilling to work should not eat. And people and politicians have used this to say, See, the Bible says if you don't work, you don't get taken care of. Therefore, God has decreed we don't need welfare. We don't need social security or assistance. We don't, we don't need SNAP to take care of kids because they're not working. We don't need unemployment benefit because you're supposed to work. The only way that you can read this is if the only part of the Bible you have ever read is that sentence. That you literally cut that one line out of the Bible and take everything else and throw it away. Because time after time after time, God proclaims that God is on the side of the poor and those who are suffering. Time after time after time, Jesus calls upon those who follow him to take care of the poor and the needy and the widows. We're called to take care of the group that I, I like to call the five L's. The least, the last, the lost, the little ones and those who are left all alone. If you read just this passage, you understand what the apostle's getting to. Keep away from believers who are living in idleness. We hear that some of you are living in idleness, mere busybodies not doing any work. The apostle encourages the Thessalonians, do not be weary in doing what is right. The church in Thessalonica believed that Jesus Christ was coming back any second now. And so, if you're on the, on the verge of life-changing events, if something big is going to happen, your attention to day-to-day -to -day responsibilities tends to dwindle. Any of you who have a child, a grandchild in school, or when you were in school yourself, remember the dreaded disease of senioritis. That you are so looking forward to that next chapter in your life that you don't pay attention to doing the things you need to do to get to that next chapter in life. And it's the same when we get out of school. If you've got something big going to happen, you've already accepted a new job and you're just putting in your last 30 days at your old job, they're not going to be your most 30 productive days. The church in Thessalonica is focused on Christ coming back. And some people have decided, well, if Jesus is coming back any day now, I don't need to go out and tend the crops or cut the grass 
or do the dishes. They were focused on what was going to happen. And the apostle is calling all of them back to pay attention to what's happening now. It's the same thing that happens to the disciples in our gospel lesson. They're in Jerusalem in the last days of Jesus' life. They're walking through the temple and they're talking about how beautiful it is. And Jesus says, well, actually, the days will come when not one stone here will be left on another. All will be thrown down. And the disciples immediately want to know, when is this going to happen? How are we going to know that this is going to happen? And Jesus tells them about what's going to happen, but he tells it to them in two parts. He tells them about the things that will happen before he returns. And he talks about them, but he says they will not happen immediately. When you hear of wars and insurrections, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first, but the end will not follow immediately. Everybody who's always, those people who have figured out the Bible to tell you that when the world is coming to an end, they will say, well, there's wars and rumors of wars, and they miss that, not follow immediately. Jesus tells them that the temple will be destroyed. Then he gives them the bad news. Before all this occurs, they will arrest you and persecute you. They will hand you over to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. Those words must have chilled those who first heard that. But it would have left questions in the minds who would have heard these words when they heard Luke's gospel. Because the temple had already been destroyed by the time that Luke wrote his gospel. The Roman army destroyed Jerusalem in the temple in the su of the summer of 70 CE. And we believe Luke wrote his gospel some 10 to 15 years after that. And he wrote it to an audience that was a mixture of those who came to believe who used to be of the Jewish faith and some who were Gentiles. And those who were Jewish were wondering what would become of their tradition because the centerpiece, the focus of their religious life the temple in Jerusalem had once again been destroyed. And they were not accepted in the synagogues in their communities. They were rejected and ejected. They were shunned because they put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ. You will be betrayed by your parents and brothers. Relatives and friends, and some of you will be put to death. You will be hated 
because of my name. If they were worried about the temple, Jesus wanted them to realize that's the least of your concerns. But he told them, don't worry about that either. This is going to give you a chance to testify. So make up your, your mind. Don't prepare your defense. I will give you words and a wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to withstand or contradict. Jesus says, I will give you the words to say because I will be with you the whole time. And while I've never been arrested or tried for Christ's name or betrayed, I have felt the power of Christ giving me words and wisdom. There are times I stood behind this pulpit or other pulpits and had words coming out of my mouth that in the back of my head I'm going, where is that coming from? Because that was not what I typed up on here last night. There is none of that in any of the commentaries I heard or read during the week. And I realize that that is a gift from God. And those were words that somebody needed to hear. And God gave me the chance to prepare them and said, well, let, let's slip this in because there's people who need to be taken care of. Jesus told his disciples, don't worry about when I'm coming back. Don't worry what's going to happen to you in the meantime. I can't predict the fate of our churches. I think we all have some sort of an understanding that in the not too distant future, there may not be three covenant church buildings to worship in. I don't know what the final resolution is going to look like. I don't have any predictions. I don't have a preference. But I know just the very nature of us talking about what it means to possibly be church together has changed the three covenant churches and it's changed the Lutheran churches in Oklahoma City. Because as they've seen the three churches come together and work together, they've looked and said, well, we can do that. Last year, we did a food drive around the Bedlam game. And we collected almost 700 pounds of food and another 400 or some dollars to go to help those who are hungry around the area of the three churches. This year we've got six churches. The three covenant churches plus three others. Last week was halftime. Collectively, we have raised a thousand pounds of food. Now, if you want me to color my hair, you got to get another thousand. The, pr the price of my hair is a ton of food. 
Now, given what I've seen from OU and OSU, second-half comebacks tend to be a specialty, so I shall be going out investigating hair dye. We're not just coming together on projects we can work together, we're coming together to worship. The Tuesday before Thanksgiving, Lord of Life is going to host a Thanksgiving service that night, followed by a, a pie social, an opportunity for all the Lutherans in Oklahoma City and whoever you can drag with you to collectively come together to give thanks for all the blessings that God has given us. Because things are going to change. Barring a massive second half comeback in attendance and membership, we're going to have to look at more ways of cooperating. But that's where it gets a little scary because I'm talking about, and I'm sorry if I'm going to use a bad word, change. There's a natural tendency to fear change, and there's a natural tendency to hold back and to step back when there's change. There should be a term for like changeitis, like senioritis, but with change. Because people want to wait and see how's this all going to shake out. I don't want to commit to something unless I know what the end is going to look like. We don't have time. We don't have the time or the resources for people to wait and see. We need people to go and do. We need people to speak up and to stand up. We need people to get involved and stay involved. We need people to stop with the excuses and to get on proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. What it is you need to do and what you're going to say, I don't know. So make up your, not, your minds not to prepare in advance. For I will give you the words and a wisdom that no one will be able to withstand or contradict. When I was preparing for the, the 65th anniversary service and was looking at all of the pictures and all of the history that I could read about this church, it seemed to me that there was a correlation between the numbers of people involved in the church and the amount of activities that the church was involved with outside of this building. That the more we were out there, the more people came in here. And that is the secret to church growth. Every church that is involved in a lot of stuff outside of their building sees people coming into their building. We need to stop worrying about what is going to happen to us and we need to worry about who is going to help our neighbor in need. 
one of the signs of change, one of the signs of growth, is we have a confirmation class with two young men, which is better than having a confirmation class with one, which is better than having a confirmation class of none. And so I've had to do a lot of reading and rereading of Luther's small catechism and large catechism and going through those materials. And it's, it's, it's influencing my sermons and just a word of warning, you all are going to start to get sick of hearing the term the two Martins. Because a lot of my reading connects with what Martin Luther wrote and what Martin Luther King preached. It's said that one of the things that Martin Luther wrote was that God does not need your good works, but your neighbor does. And that type of doing good work for the sake and benefit of your neighbor is the agape love that Dr. King preached about so much, especially when he was describing the beloved community that he thought this country could be. And if you remember, if you, how, how many of you had to memorize the small catechism? And since I know that you all still know it, it when Luther's talking about the commandments, the commandment of not bearing false witness, not stealing, not coveting, even of honoring the Sabbath, all of it is so that you can be of benefit to your neighbor. You're not to bear false witness, say bad things about your neighbor, but that's not enough. He wants you to hold your neighbor in the best possible light. It's not just, well, they keep the grass clippings in their side of the yard. It's to lift them up and to elevate them, to praise them for the good things that they do, and to help them with the things they need help for. And that's the agape love that Dr. King wanted us to do. Repeatedly, in the small and large catechisms, Martin Luther talks about that the work that we are to do here on earth is done to give glory to God, but is done for the benefit of our neighbor who is in need. And Dr. Martin Luther King described the unifying force of agape love as the hope of the world. But the end is reconciliation. The end is redemption, he wrote. The end is the creation of the beloved community. It is this type of spirit and this type of love that can transform opposers into friends. The type of love that I stress here is agape love, which is understanding goodwill for all humanity. It is an overflowing love seeking nothing in return. It is the love of God working in the lives of people. It is the love that may very well be the salvation of our civilization. One of the things about the way the church picks out the readings during the church year is as we get 
close to Advent and in the season of Advent, all the lessons talk about preparing for the coming of Christ. And we think that we're focusing on preparing for the birth of Christ. And we are to some degree. But the readings are talking about Christ coming again, about the end of the world. And it doesn't take but a half second of turning on the news to read about wars and rumors of war, nation against nation and kingdom against kingdom and earthquakes and famines and plagues and dreadful portents and great signs from heaven. And the only thing standing in its way is as Dr. King says, this is the love that may well be the salvation of our civilization. There is that day that is surely coming when Christ will come again. And we are to be about, we are to be doing the work Christ has called us to do. We are to be proclaiming the good news of God by helping our neighbor who is in need. There's work to be done and we need to get busy. Amen.